wife, Lena. Yeah, Lena. <laughs> they're, they're from London, Ontario, Canada. Good friends of ours. And uh, God's doing some good things up in Canada, too, right? As well as Mexico, anyway. Just want to say thank you for having us back once again. We missed last year because we had our first grandbaby, and so we needed to stay home for that. But it's great to be back. It's like coming home to a family, a church that we've gotten to know over the years. And, um, you know, this this next weekend, we've been married 33 years. <laughs> We always knew there was going to, there was a calling on our life, on Howard's life. Wasn't sure what it was going to be, where God was going to lead us. I have great stories just like Bill and Tammy, but no time to tell them. So you'll have to come to Canada. <laughs> but you know, 13 years we stayed in church, were faithful to the, to the Lord. And 20 years of that now, we have been in full-time ministry. God has taken us places I've never dreamt. God has done things that we have asked for and still are waiting for. Um, in Canada, we are in a small town, about 358,000. And um, <laughs> uh, there is more than one stop sign. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> he has um, just amazingly blessed the ministry. We purchased... Uh, the most notorious strip bar in town got shut down, praise God. And four other buildings on the just right beside our church we've purchased. And each one of those buildings today is being used in ministry of some sort for his kingdom. Bringing, we've even now opened up uh, Monday night um, homework study night for children in our neighborhood. And um, just starting out small, but we see the Lord is blessing that work already. We're seeing people come to the Lord. We're seeing many healings. Great move amongst the men's group and the women's group. God is really using that um, outreach in the community in our church. So we're grateful to be here once again. Thank you for your prayers. And I know many of you have come to see us. And you're all welcome back to come and see what it's all about. (laughs) Hallelujah. So just before I start, I'd like to thank you. I think many of you know that I was diagnosed with lymphoma in December. And uh, the Lord had called me, I, I sensed, to start writing books. So we've written about 13 books. I'm, number 14 is going to be published. I'm working on number 15. But when I, before I got diagnosed with lymphoma, I spent five weeks teaching the book of Job. And then I spent three and a half months writing a book about the book of Job. It was called, Why Do the Righteous Suffer? I actually wrote, it's about three times longer than the book of Job, so I had more to say about Job than Job had to say about Job. <laughs> and, and I spent three and a half months reading and writing and, and going through this and finally finishing this book. A week later, the doctor says, I have lymphoma. And I, I looked at the doctor, you know something? I wasn't excited, but I said, you know, I can trust you, Lord. I can trust you. And so I, when he, after he diagnosed me, I began to share the gospel with him. Right? Because it says, I, we know we're both leaving this earth, but I know where I'm going. But anyways, so, but thank you very much for your prayers and still trusting God for good results. Just finished my, uh, radiation chemo and stuff about six weeks ago. But, um, God's in control. And so, anyways, so this, this morning I want to talk about prayer. This is prayer and this is part five. I've been so merciful that I'm leaving the first four parts out. And, <laughs> So it's, 
I'm glad somebody laughed. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's what I want to talk about this morning. In the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. I'm going to speak real quick. That's why we make the messages shorter. Um, in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus gave us a pattern in Matthew chapter 6 of what prayer looks like and how it functions. By the way, if you want to get, get all my notes later, they're all there. They can print them off for you or download them or whatever. What many call the Lord's Prayer is not simply something one repeats, even though one could repeat it, but it, is, it provides us with seven essential qualities of prayer. For instance, our Father, the intimacy that prayer is to produce. In heaven, the worship that prayer is to produce. Hallowed be your name, the purity that prayer is to produce. When we say hallowed be your name, that's in the imperative mood, not in the indicative, indicative mood. In other words, it's not a statement of fact, it's a request. It's saying, let your name be holy, let my life be pure, so your name would be holy. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal that prayer is to produce. Give us this day our daily bread is a dependency that prayer is to produce. And then today we're going to look at, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's the spiritual inventory and the right relationships that prayer is to produce. Up to the point when we pray, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the Lord's Prayer seems to flow seamlessly from thought to thought. But then the conjunction and is introduced, which in the Greek is the word kai. The Greek word kai not only functions as a connective word, but also as a marker of emphasis involving surprise or even unexpectedness. The and in the and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors not only breaks the flow of the prayer, but causes us to pause and gives us opportunity to reflect and contemplate what we're actually praying and the consequences of this segment of the prayer. When we pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are both acknowledging a principle by which God operates and actively agreeing with him on that principle. So when we say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we're saying, God, that's a principle you operate on, and you know something, I agree with you on that principle. Matthew six fourteen to 15, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. These verses that directly follow the Lord's Prayer both expand upon and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and clearly explain the consequences that sin has on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The fact that this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that is immediately repeated and expa- explained in greater detail right after the Lord's Prayer emphasizes the great importance that this principle has on our lives. What does it mean if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses? First, it shows that unconfessed And undealt with sin has serious consequences in our relationship with God and specifically the sin of unforgiveness. 
When it says, if you do not forgive men your trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses, it is not dealing with, with judicial forgiveness, but with relational forgiveness. So it's not dealing with judicial forgiveness, it's dealing with relational forgiveness. When we first came to Christ and put our faith in Him, confessed our sinful and lost state, He gave, He forgave us and we were born again and delivered from the penalty of sin, which is eternal damnation in the lake of fire. This is judicial forgiveness. It's called justification. Now, I'm going really quick because I want to make sure that I don't keep you hanging here. So we're moving quickly. So hopefully you can keep up with me as I'm speaking quick. So salvation is much more than just going to heaven. It is about developing our relationship with God and fulfilling his purpose for our lives. That's what salvation is. It's not just about going to heaven. While judicial forgiveness deals with being in right standing through the blood of Jesus Christ, relational forgiveness deals with the quality of our relationship with our Father through our actions, words, and even our thoughts. It is clear from both scripture and experience that even though every born-again believer has the same righteous standing before God, based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the quality of that relationship with God can vary greatly from believer to believer, depending upon each person's level of commitment and consecration. How we develop a relationship with God on earth will affect the quality of our relationship with God, not only in this earthly life, but also in heaven and for all eternity. Relational forgiveness speaks about being in harmony with the Father and with His purposes for our lives. Many Christians have a very narrow view of salvation, and their only concern is they're going to heaven. But salvation is much richer, deeper, and more glorious than just getting to heaven. When believers think of salvation only in terms of going to heaven, it results in lives that are mediocre at best and filled with dissipation and destruction at worst. So if you're thinking, well, I'm saved, I received Jesus, isn't it wonderful I'm going to heaven? I said, you know something, you've got such a narrow mindset. Now, if I've offended anybody, don't tell me. But I, <laughs> but that's true. I mean, how many times you see Christians, they live mediocre lives because they're thinking it's salvation just about going to heaven. But that's only one small part of all that Jesus purchased for us. i got to see where I am now. Okay, that's good. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built thereon endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he will himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. There will be a day... For each believer, when we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and it will become clear on that day how we lived our lives. The day, referring to the judgment seat of Christ, is not about judicial forgiveness and justification, because the moment we received Jesus Christ and were born again, we did pass from death to life. At the judgment seat of Christ, each one's work will be tested of what sort it is and how well we live their lives. One of the biggest tests will be based on our relationship with God and our relationship with those around us. 
If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. While justification, judicial forgiveness, deals with freedom from the penalty of sin, sanctification and right relationships deals with rewards, crowns, inheritances. Have you ever heard a Christian say, you know something, I love God so much, I'm not looking for his crowns and rewards and inheritance. It's just about just, I just want to love God. You know something? That is one of the most rebellious and selfish statements you can say as a Christian. Do you know that? There's one of the most rebellious and selfish statements you can make as a Christian. It's like, let's say I went and spent a fortune to buy you a present. You go, it's not important. That's what we're saying. God is saying, my rewards and crowns and inheritance are so precious that Jesus died and rose from the dead so I could give it to you. And you're saying you don't care? You say it's insignificant? When you're saying, I just love God, I don't need that, you're not really loving God at all. Okay, we're going on now. Whew. That's why I do aerobic exercise after. So anyways, <laughs> okay, we're, we're, we're moving forward here. Okay. The fire will test each one's work. The fire will test each one's work. In hell, there's the fire of condemnation, which burns for all eternity. But at the judgment seat of Christ, there is a fire of purification that is temporary for the purpose of removing anything in our lives and hearts that we failed to remove during our earthly life. There's a fire at the judgment seat of Christ, and it will purify us because nothing impure can get into heaven. Heaven, it will be perfect. But... If we don't allow our lives to be cleansed now, the fire, the judgment seat of Christ removes those things. The very concept of fire at the judgment seat of Christ emphasizes the severity and the gravity of the judgment each believer will experience. In other words, oh, I'm saved and everything's fine. But it talks about the judgment seat of Christ. It talks about it as a fearful thing for some. It's a severe, it's grave It's important. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. For some, at the judgment seat of Christ, they will experience great sorrow and regret as they face the reality of their irreparable and eternal loss because they resisted the grace of God in their lives. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. Some believers will find the experience of the judgment seat of Christ filled with great joy and glory as the fire reveals the breathtaking and magnificent things that the grace of God accomplished in them and through them as they gaze upon all the rewards and crowns and inheritance that God is going to impart to them. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as so through fire. The fire at the judgment seat of Christ is not for condemnation, and every born-again believer will pass through it into heaven, but with some with terrible eternal loss. I remember a book, Jamie Lash, right? It's called um, uh, This Was Your Life. And in the book, one of the chapters speaks about a, a brother who was, I think he was working for Youth for Christ. And he had, he had grown up in the church and come to the Lord and he was in full-time ministry, but busy, you know. And one day a brother came to an older brother and said, I want to share something with you. It was during his office time. And so while the other old brother sitting in front of his desk, Jamie was, or not Jamie, but the other fellow, Howard, what was his name? 
yeah, was, was just doing his paperwork. And, and this guy was trying to share about the judgment seat of Christ. And, and finally, the, 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 the youth leader looked up and, and saw this old man with tears in his eyes weeping. And, and because he was trying to share something so important in his life about the judgment seat of Christ. And all of a sudden he felt really ashamed and he stopped and he put down his papers and he said, I'm so sorry, please share with me. And he began to share about the judgment seat of Christ. And he had never heard about it, never really thought about it. Very few people teach about it. And all of a sudden as he's listening to this, he's being stirred and, and then he makes a decision. He says to his secretary, for the next four days, hold all my calls. I'm going home. I'm just going to spend time in prayer and study. And he began to study in the Bible all where it talked about rewards, crowns, inheritance, about the judgment seat of Christ, about all these things that he'd never thought about before. And so he spent about four days studying and praying. And, and one afternoon, he, he was praying and just meditating, and he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, he had a dream. And in the dream, he, he saw all these Christians, some of them he recognized. They're all standing before the Lord. And each one had like wood, hay, and stubble, like a big pile in front of them. And, 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 and they're, all, they're all... And he looks down and he sees his pile of wood, hay, and stubble. And he gets kind of really nervous. And he sees Jesus walking up. And he sees Jesus with a, a scepter. And as he would go and he would put... Um, his scepter down, uh, flames would come out and it would burn up that pile. And sometimes that pile would burn up and there'd just be ashes left. And then the Christian would look down and begin to wail and wail as he looked and saw that his whole life had been wasted. But other ones he'd put down and the fire would reveal gold and silver and precious stones and then he would see that believer just rejoicing with overwhelming joy. And he recognized one brother that had led him to Christ, actually, years before. But had made a decision to turn away from God's calling in his life because he wanted to marry another Christian girl who didn't want to be involved in ministry. And he chose her over God's calling. And he saw him standing at the judgment seat of Christ. And he saw the Lord touch that pile in front of him. And it was reduced to ashes. And there he was wailing and weeping. And then he saw another lady... Grandma Shipley, remember her? And and she had been kind of like his spiritual mother when he was his father had a small little country church and she always kept saying what was his name again? I can't remember. His last name was Howard, but I can't remember. He says, but ever she said he says there's a great calling on your life and I'm praying for you when since he was a little boy. And he hadn't received the Lord for many years, like he was a teenager kind of still in his rebellious state. And, and she would every Sunday say, son, I'm praying for you. There's a great calling in your life. And one day during an altar call, he was about 14. And the presence, he says that his father's sermons were only about 10 minutes long, but the altar calls were an hour. And uh, one, one day, the presence of God was convicting him. He was holding on to the back of that front, the pew in front of him. And there it is, Grandma Shipley gets up and walks down the aisle and says, it's your day, son. It's your day. And she takes hold of him and leads him forward and he, and he receives Christ. And so she had been a, a real prayer word. He had ended up going to Bible school, leaving and going to ministry. And so years later when he had come back to visit his family, by this time Grandma Shipley had, had, had Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia and she was at home but she couldn't, she wasn't cognitive. And her father, and his father said, we need to visit her 
but he felt very uncomfortable. He, well, she won't recognize me and stuff. You need to do it for yourself, son. She was the one that prayed for you for all those years. So they went to the home, and when he, they knocked on the door, a caregiver came and, 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 and brought, her in, brought, brought them in. And, 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 of course, by this time she didn't speak. And what they do is they dress her in the morning and feed her, and then they put her in the living room, and she would just be there with sitting, staring face forward with a Bible in her hand. That was it. She'd spend the whole day there, and that's all that would happen. So as they walked in, um, they walked in from the side, so she's just staring forward. As soon as he walked in, she says, is that you? And she called him by his name. Rick. Is that you, Rick? And when he heard that, he, he was shocked. Everybody was shocked. She spoke. She says, God's got a great calling on your life, and I've been praying for you. So all those years, while it looked like nothing was going on, she was continuing to fulfill God's will and intercede. Well, in this dream, he saw her there. And he saw the, the scepter go, and all of a sudden, the, the flames went out and appeared a huge pile of gold and silver and precious stones, and there she was rejoicing with the glory of God. And then Jesus started walking up to Rick. And as he was about to put that scepter to his pile... He woke up, and he was completely drenched with sweat. And so what Tammy was saying, actually, Tammy, you preached my sermon, but that's okay, because you did a better job than I have done. And that, praise the Lord for that, is that it's what we do in this life. We only got one life. We only got one life. And are we building with wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones? Anyways, going, continuing on the message, that was sort of like a freebie here. I just threw that in. Revelation 7:17. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For those believers at the judgment seat of Christ that have experienced the realization they've wasted their entire lives, Jesus will wipe away their tears, but not their losses. There'll be no tears and regrets in heaven, but the losses will be eternal. The losses will be eternal. In heaven, there will be not tears or regrets. However, depending on how we developed a relationship with God in this life, will determine the level of intimacy and glory we will experience with the Lord in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, what does it speak about? It speaks about the resurrection. And it talks about, and the resurrection will be like, the glory of the sun is different than the glory of the moon. And even every star is different in glory one from another. So it will be in the resurrection. In other words, the glory that each believer will experience will be different depending on how our relationship with God grew and how we yielded to the grace of God. It's not all the same. Some Christians will have developed such a deep and intimate relationship with God that they will even sit with Him on His throne forever. Do you realize that? There will be some that will be so intimate, they will be with God on His throne. That's what it says. But there will be others on the sea of glass. And if you notice in Revelation 7:17, the ones that have the tears are the ones on the sea of glass, not the elders sitting with Him on His throne. And when I think about what what's these crowns speak about? Well, this is some thoughts. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. But when I think of inheritance, I think about developing the nature of Christ. It says, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then it says, what are the inheritance? Love, joy, peace, all, patience, and all those nine, nine 
fruit of the Spirit. That is God's nature being developed in us. And the less that we allow that nature to be developed, less we can experience that relationship with him now and in eternity. It will be limited. The rewards, when I see the parables of the rewards, I see it about ruling with Christ forever. In other words, it says you will be given, you've been faithful in few, you'll be given ten cities to rule over. In other words, I see rewards because in heaven, you know, so we're not sitting around. Heaven's a physical place. Do you realize that? And God is going to be doing things for all eternity. And for those that will be yielded to him, we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And also, what are the crowns speaking about? I see it as intimacy, being with him on his throne. That special level of intimacy. But, I mean, those are just some thoughts. <clears throat> in fact, in Revelation 3, 21, where it talks about, you know, whoever overcomes will be granted to sit with me on my throne. It says some interesting things. It says here, because you are lukewarm, he says, I will spew you out. People say, what's that all about? Well, first of all, it goes on and says, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever hears me and opens, I will have dinner with them. See, the warning is not about judicial forgiveness. It speaks about relationship. It's like Jesus says, you know, I don't enjoy fellowshipping with you. You're lukewarm. I'm, you're giving me no enjoyment. He loves us, but he's not enjoying it. That's what the warning is. It's about fellowship. And it's saying your fellowship gives me no joy. And then he says, and I knock at the door so we can have dinner together. It's about relationship. See, it's, it's, a lot of people use it for non-believers to say God's knocking at the door. And that's, that's, a, that's a good thought. But that's not the context of it. The context is to the churches, to the believers, saying, I'm knocking at the door. If you will hear me and you will open the door of your heart, I will come in and we will begin to develop our intimacy and fellowship. It's like what Tammy was saying, right, is to just be filled with God. When we pray, forgive us and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, the and is meant to be a pause in our prayer to consider the condition of our hearts and specifically in regards to relationship with God, with others. So when we're praying, all of a sudden we're supposed to stop as we're praying and say, how is my relationship with God? How is my relationship with other people? I need to stop now. I need to consider that. Um, in July 2004, Bill Wood shared with some, me with something that the Lord spoke to him. And it's this. He says, three things to evaluate your life by. Remember that, Bill? Was it in the morning the Lord woke you up and, and spoke those words to you? Three things to evaluate your life by. The first thing is the reality of your mortality. See, God does poetry. The reality of your mortality. The second thing is the return of Christ. And the third thing is the fear of the Lord. The reality of your mortality. You know, I don't know, I, I don't know where this quote came from. I wish I could remember, but I remember the quote. Everyone knows they're gonna die, but nobody believes it. <laughs> right? Everybody knows they're gonna die, but nobody, we don't live like our life is limited, even though it is limited. Well, yeah, sure, of course I'm gonna die, but we don't live that way. Well, I'm trying to live that way. Our life is limited. And you know something? We've got a privilege in this earth, on this earth that we'll never have in eternity in heaven. You know what that privilege is? To see God's will done on this earth. 
We have that privilege. We have that privilege. When we pray, we can see God's will done. We can pray and we can see God heal people. We can pray and we can see people come to Christ. We can share the gospel. We can't do that in heaven. We can never do that in heaven. So we say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't, I can wait to get to heaven because I want to see God's glory manifest in people's lives. And I want to be that living sacrifice. I'm not there yet, but I want to be because my life is short. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting too that, I mean, one week before I was going to go into treatment, I remember this girl came forward in the church and we, my wife and I prayed for her. The Lord healed her instantaneously in three parts of her body. And immediately, I just said, Lord, heal me right now. <laughs> but the thing is, I know my life is short. It doesn't matter. You know, like when I was, now that I'm getting, I'm getting close to 60, you know, 80's on the horizon. 80s, I can see 80 from 60. But when I was 20, I couldn't even see 30. (laughs) That's true, right? I can see 80 now. And I say, God, while I still have strength, while I still have strength, help me to come to a place of greater yielding. I'm not yielded the way I want to be yielded yet. But I'm saying, God, I am believing the grace of God will do that. Many Christians fail to understand the implication of and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and live self-centered lives void of any eternal perspective. Mark eleven twenty-five. And when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And when you stand praying, forgive. Prayer is one of the ways the Holy Spirit speaks to us concerning unresolved issues of our heart. It is often during prayer that we recognize those things and confess them, repent of them, and receive forgiveness for them. In other words, when it says, if somebody's hurt you, the truth is people will hurt us. It's not imaginary. It is true. But it's saying, God, but when I come, I say, I forgive them. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Therefore, you bring your gift to the altar and then you remember that, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. And when we pray and forgive us, it gives us an opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to search your hearts for any broken relationships that have not been dealt with. First, be reconciled to your brother. When we know someone is offended by us, we need to go and make peace with them. It doesn't always mean we have done something purposely or even in reality to wrong the person. But if it is, if it is something that has, is stumbling them, we need to do our best to reconcile the relationship. In other words, say, well, that person is offended, but I haven't done anything. That may be true, but God says still go because you care for them. Go and still make rec- reconcile with them. Don't say, well, I didn't do anything. That's your problem. No, no, God says, if your brother's offended, go and try to make peace. In, in Romans 12, 18, it says this, Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Live peaceably with all men. God is calling us to be peaceable, have peaceable relationships with everyone in our sphere of influence. If it is possible, as much as depends on you. However, God is not placing on our shoulders the full responsibility to have peaceable relationships. He is only asking for us to do our part. 
If someone does not want to be at peace with us or have a good relationship with us, then we're not bound or hindered by their hardness of heart as long as we've done our part to reach out to them. Isn't that nice? You have some people that are just so nasty. And so as long as we have blessed them, as long as we've done our part, we're free then. Harmony with people requires both parties. But to have a right attitude on our, in our hearts only requires ourselves. So God isn't saying you're responsible to be in harmony with everybody, but you're responsible to have a right attitude towards everybody. Matthew 5, 43 to 45. And you have heard it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The Word of God speaks not only about forgiving those who have wronged us and asking for forgiveness to those whom we have wronged, but even forgiving those who do not seek forgiveness from us, but continue to seek to harm us. Wow. We are to have a heart of love toward all people just as God loves all people, independent of their action words and motivation that you may be sons of your father in heaven as we cooperate with the grace of god so his heart of love can be formed in us our relationship with god blossoms why because when we learn to love and forgive and bless even our enemies then god's heart is being formed in us and we can have a closer relationship Since God commands us to love our enemies, there's one thing that is essential for us to be able to fulfill this commandment. Enemies. Because without enemies, it's just theoretical. You ever seen people when they first become a Christian, everybody's nice to them. Oh, yes, I just want to love my enemies. But they don't know what they're talking about yet. Right? So God provides us something absolutely essential. Enemies. The world provides us with many enemies, and God uses the very tactics of Satan to do such a work in our hearts that the glory of God can be manifest. Do you know something? If it was not for enemies, we wouldn't be able to have those issues in our heart dealt with. Right? Like, I can even be a nice guy when people are nice to me. Right? But it's when people are nasty to me, or people wrong me, or people take advantage of me, people lie to me, people betray me, people deceive me, then... Then those things in my heart get dealt with. They get revealed. Then I have a choice what to do with those things. You know something? Trials are described as a fire, right? So we have a choice. We can either go through the fire now or we can go through the fire at the judgment seat of Christ. But if we go through the fire now, it brings purity and brings rewards, crowns, and inheritance. But if we want to bypass the fire now, then there is a fire at the judgment seat of Christ. And it will purify, but it will result in eternal loss. So we have a choice, the fire now or the fire later. I know these are one of these encouraging messages. Everybody's going amen all the time. <laughs> so <clears throat> maybe we'll have Tammy go back up. Everybody's amening her. <laughs> but it is in the midst of adversities, adversities that many times God wants to do a work in our hearts if we do not resist but respond with love and forgiveness. I love this, um, Eliezer shared with me, there was one guy in his church that um, uh, it was complaining about his workplace. And he says his boss was just horrible. 
And she says, I can't stand working for him. I'm just going to quit. And Eliezer said, look, I think you really need to just be there for a bit and just, just have a good attitude in the midst of this. There's no way. So anyways, the guy quit. He got another job. But four months later, he says to Eliezer, you know something? This place is worse than the last place. I think I'm working for the guy's father. <laughs> and then he said this. God didn't want me to change my job. He wanted me to change my attitude. God didn't want me to change my job. He wanted to change my attitude. A lot of times we want to get away from things that bother us. But God's saying, I want to work in your heart. Some of the greatest enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ have been transformed by the love of God expressed through Christians. Apostle Paul is one example of a man who, before his conversion, was not only an enemy of the gospel, but one committed to the destruction of the church. But through the love of Christ, Paul ended up giving his life for the church. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean that God requires us to naively trust everyone. In fact, the Bible instructs us to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Forgiveness is something that we must give out freely and generously to all around us without exception. But trust and friendship must be developed, cultivated, and proven over time. Some people say, well, if you forgive someone, you got it. No, no, you don't have to be open-hearted. Somebody may steal from me, and I can forgive them, and I need to forgive them fully, but I don't give them my wallet for safekeeping. Do you follow that? So some people feel like, well, if I've really forgiven them, I should just embrace them, I should just trust them, I should invite them into my heart. No. That is earned. But forgiveness is, I have nothing against you, I pray for you, I bless you, but I'm going to also be wise. Because until you change and repent, I can't have fellowship with you. Or I can't have close fellowship with you. And no, you can't have my wallet. (laughs) Whoever said that, see me afterwards. (laughs) Okay, let's, okay, there I am. God is, um, God is not asking us to expose ourselves to abusive or dangerous people, but simply have a heart of love and forgiveness towards those people. Forgiveness does not mean we simply ignore their bad or dangerous behavior, but we choose to forgive them. Forgiveness does not equate to trust. God asks us to forgive unconditionally all those who have wronged us, even our enemies, and those who do seek, and those who do not even seek to for seek forgiveness. But He does not say we should be naive and blindly trust them. While King Saul sought to kill David, David continued to forgive, bless, and honor King Saul. But he also maintained a safe distance from him by fleeing into the wilderness of Judah. He says, you know, I want to bless Saul, but I want to be as many kilometers away as possible. <laughs> right? 1 Peter 3.7 Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Bitterness and unresolved conflicts, especially between husbands husbands and wives, can hinder our prayer. As much as possible, as much as possible, God is calling us to restore broken relationships. If we are doing as much as we can to live peaceably with all people, then our prayers and relationship with God will not be hindered. If we're doing our part, our prayers and our relationship with God will not be hindered. 
In Psalm 51, 12, restored to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. One of the signs of a believer who walks in forgiveness and is free from bitterness is that he or she is filled with the joy of salvation. A believer who is plagued by bitterness will never enjoy their salvation and lacks the joy of the Lord, right? Have you ever seen a bitter Christian who's happy? So I'm so happy I'm bitter. It just doesn't happen. It's impossible. It says, and uphold me by your generous spirit. One way to be upheld by God's generous spirit is to be generously and freely forgiving all those who wrong us, even when they're not expecting or even asking forgiveness. Be generous with forgiveness because that's God's generous spirit that brings forth joy in our hearts. Romans 14, 15 to 17. Romans 14, 15 to 17. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. The Bible teaches us not to do anything that could stumble or offend a fellow believer. It's saying, well, he's infringing on my freedom. doesn't matter. Don't do anything that can stumble a fellow believer. Because remember, there is the judgment seat of Christ. You're offending, you're offending him. You're affecting his ability to walk with God. And you're affecting your ability to walk with God. The gospel is about righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness can speak about right relationships. Peace can speak about a heart that is free from offenses and unforgiveness. And joy can speak about an overflowing of the life freely connected to God's grace. When we pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we acknowledge that our relationship with others affects our relationship with God, our Father in heaven. When we pray... And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We acknowledge that our relationship with others affects our relationship with our Father in heaven. The message of the gospel is all about relationships. Our relationship with God affects our relationship with others. A healthy relationship with God paves a way for us to be able to love and accept and forgive those around us. Isn't that true? I remember when I first received the Lord for the first three days, I was so happy. Nobody could offend me because I was just, it was oblivious. Oh, thank you that I'm saved. Oh, hallelujah. You know, being Jewish, I didn't even know you could get saved. Right? <laughs> even though Jews are always interested in savings. But, but I mean, I just didn't understand. I said, I could get saved. I could get saved. I said, I was saved. I was so happy. Like, you know what I mean? It was so wonderful. Our relation, but our relationship with others affects our relationship with God. You see somebody coming out starting out with just a joyful relationship with God, but then they allow things in their hearts against others. When we neglect to cultivate healthy relationships with others, it will affect our relationship with God. Unresolved issues in our heart toward others hinders our ability to experience God's love, peace, and joy. You know, when we have stuff in our heart against others, we just need to say, God, I forgive them. I choose to forgive them because if we don't, our relationship, our prayer life doesn't be, is not vibrant. Matthew 22 verses 36 to 40. 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the first and, and first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? One of the religious leaders asked Jesus to summarize the heart of, the, of God's word. Maybe he expected Jesus to respond regarding keeping the Sabbath or the dietary laws or one of the seven feasts of the Lord. But his response was about relationships and the law of love. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about right relationships, first between God and us, and secondly between our fellow man and us. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Unless we allow the grace of God to transform us so we fully love God, we will find our spiritual lives will come to a dead end. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A consequences of loving God fully is that we begin to love others unselfishly. You know, I, I don't know how it is here, but sometimes we have Christians who come to the church and I find out they're living together, they're not married. And I, and so I sit down with them, I'm, I'm very gracious of course. <clears throat> and, um, and what I do is I explain to them that what you're doing is, so well, we love each other. I said, no you don't. You're using each other. Because basically, if you love another, you, I, I look at them and I said, you're defiling her and you're defiling him. For your own selfish benefit. So some get married and some leave. But, um, <laughs> but I never tell anyone to leave. I give them multiple choice. <laughs> you know? So one person said, he kicked me out of the church. I go, that's not true, but it's okay. It was free advertisement. At least people knew that I wasn't going to put up with that behavior. <laughs> right? He tried to malign my character, but at least everybody in the church knew this isn't going to happen here. <laughs> But another thing, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, another point that is brought out here is you got to love yourself. See, the thing is, you got to, you know, some of the biggest problems are we can't forgive ourselves. Sometimes we struggle. Say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't made that decision. And so what happens? We're bitter towards ourselves because we all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions. We all fail in many different ways. And we need to say, Lord, I forgive myself. I forgive myself. I acknowledge that was wrong, but I forgive myself for that bad decision, or I shouldn't have said this, or I should have done that, or whatever it is. Because we can't love others when we are in conflict with ourselves. So it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a person that we sometimes forget that we have to forgive. Religion is about activity, but righteousness is about relationships. A person can be very religious and harbor resentment and unforgiveness. Religion is about outward activity. In fact, religious people can sometimes exude bitterness and be extremely judgmental and critical since religion has nothing to do with relationships. Right? So when a person's religious, they'll be critical and stuff. You know it's religion because it's not relationship. And that really has hurt the gospel, hasn't it? Since the gospel is all about relationships, everything we do should be about cultivating healthy, loving relationships. And that's why we pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is never look for justice, but never cease to live it. From Oswald Chambers. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is never look for justice, but never cease to live it. And I want to just expand that a bit. If we look for justice, we'll become bitter, disillusioned, and vindictive. This world is not just. People will cheat you. People will lie to you. You see so much corruption around the world. And if you look at that and you're expecting justice, you will become a bitter Christian. So never look for justice in this world because you will be disillusioned. 
But if we seek to live out justice, we will be forgiving and loving, knowing that Jesus Christ has already paid the full price for our sins, and he desires to save every man, woman, and child. You know, when we live justice, you know what living justice is? When somebody wrongs you and you forgive them. You know how that's living justice? You're saying, justice has been fulfilled at the cross. I forgive you because Jesus paid the price. I forgive you because justice has been done at the cross. And so we're living justice out by forgiving. We're living justice out by forgiving. We extend mercy and forgiveness to those who are erring, not to excuse their behavior, but to help them change their behavior. You know, if you want to see someone fixed in their sin, just start condemning them then you will see them becoming so rigid more and more into sin. But when you forgive them, even when they're walking in rebellion and sin, then you know something? You're giving them not an excuse to sin. You're giving them an opportunity to change. You know, we don't change people. Like when I deal with, again, with, with people who are walking in sexual immorality, and, and I say, you, you either have to stop this or leave the church. I, I say to them, I'm not doing this to punish you, because that's not my job to punish people. And I'm not doing this to try to force you to change because it's not my job to change you. I'm doing this to protect the church. Because if I don't do it, then people think, well, maybe the standard's not that bad. So I say, I'm not doing it because I'm angry at you that I'm trying to punish you or I'm trying to change you. That's between you and God. I'm doing it to protect the church. And so once they understand that, see, because God changes people and God is the one who chastises, right? That's not my job. But my job is to show them unconditional love so they can see that God is still there for them, not against them. But they have to choose how they're going to respond to that. This is a quote from my brother. People don't usually express their feelings of jealousy. Instead, they look for faults in other person, the other person to justify their ugly feelings. Isn't that a good quote? People don't usually express their feelings as jealousy. Instead, they look for faults in other, the other person to justify their ugly feelings. When we are unhappy about our lives, we tend to be angry and judgmental towards others. Romans 2.1 Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. For you who judge practice the same things. The spiritual principle is a good way to gauge the condition of our own hearts. I use this all the time. I don't like to use it, but I do. Because if something is bothering me with someone else, I go, what's in my heart that's causing that? The very thing that bothers us about someone else are the very things we are struggling with and are guilty of doing. For example, um, an example of this, how this principle works. Proud people can't stare, get, stare, stand arrogant people, while humble people are not bothered by arrogant people. You ever notice that? A humble person, arrogance doesn't bother a humble humble person, but a a proud person gets really bothered by an arrogant person. This is what happens. I can't believe that person said that to me. I just can't believe that person's so arrogant that he would say that to me. You know, humility in the Greek means not far from the ground. That means when a person insults you, it goes right over your head. (laughs) Right? Now, I didn't get that part from the lexicon. But anyways, but you, you, but you follow that, right? When we're humble, arrogant people will not bother us. But when we're bothered by arrogant people, that's because we're still dealing with pride. You know the difference between a proud person and an arrogant person? A proud person doesn't want to admit that they're proud. An arrogant person doesn't really care. Right? 
You ever had a proud person doesn't want to look proud? Oh, I'm so humble, yes. You know what I mean? But they're really proud. But an arrogant person, I really don't care what you think. That's the only difference. It's the same thing, just different kind of flower, um, so to speak. But anyways, we'll go moving on now. So the consequence of holding on to resentment and refusing to forgive is that we lose something very precious in regards to God's plan of salvation for our lives. We lose the redemptive work of God that God wants to do in our lives today. When you're struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness, you're losing today. You're losing today. That's what you're losing. And it's something you will never regain. Some Christians have lost months, years, and even decades of their lives because they refuse to forgive and release those who have wronged them or whom they perceive to have wronged them. I've seen Christians who have lost decades because they have held on to unforgiveness and they have lost something of God's salvation, the redemptive work they, God wanted to do in all those years. My wife's very wise. I have to say that. But it's true. But I remember one time a lady came up to her and was sharing about something that happened years and years and years ago. Somebody had done something maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago to her. And she was still resentful. And my wife looked at her and says, It's so sad that you have wasted all these years holding on to that. And in fact, probably that person doesn't even remember it happened. And you spent all these years holding on to that. And you've wasted all these years. Isn't that sad? Forgiveness is not a feeling but a choice. It really is a step of faith and obedience. When we believe, when we as believers choose to forgive someone, even if they do not seek forgiveness, we have made a very important declaration of faith. We have recognized the forgiveness that God extended to us through the death of his son is so much greater than the small injustices we've experienced through the transgressions of a fellow man. Do you see that? So every time you forgive, you're making a declaration. You're saying, God, your forgiveness to me is so much more wonderful than what someone has done against me. For me to forgive them, it's just a little minute grain compared to what you've done for me through Jesus. When we choose to forgive someone for the sake, when we choose to forgive someone for the sake of Jesus Christ, then we are actively acknowledging not only how much we have been forgiven, but how thankful and appreciative we are to God for Jesus' sacrifice for us. Every time we forgive someone, we're saying, God, thank you. Every time you forgive someone, even an enemy, and you forgive them, you're saying, thank you for forgiving me, Father. Thank you for Jesus dying for me. So every time you forgive someone, you're declaring, thank you for your forgiveness for me. It's a way of appreciating and expressing our thanksgiving to him by forgiving someone and letting them know a little bit about the forgiveness that God has for them. The old adage, if something costs nothing, it is worth nothing, is seen in Christians who are will, unwilling to obey and live self-sacrificing lives for the one who died for them. They place little value on the, on the forgiveness and salvation they've received through Christ's sacrifice for them. Isn't that true? See, Christians who, they hold on their resentments and hold on little of this, that, and, and you say, isn't it wonderful you say, yeah, it's pretty good. What do you mean pretty good? You think the lake of fire is not so bad? Like, what is this? 
You know what I mean? And it's because it costs them nothing. It means nothing to them. But when we say, God, this is so precious that I'm willing to give up everything for you, then all of a sudden the joy of that salvation starts blossoming, starts exploding in our hearts. And so Christians who hold on to little tiny sins and unforgiveness and resentments, they are draining themselves because they're saying, you know something, what Jesus did for me isn't such a great thing. It was nice, but it's not such a great thing. But for us who are saying it's worth us laying our whole lives for him, it will blossom into something so wonderful. To live a life of forgiveness and self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel will lead to a life of freedom, fruitfulness, and fulfillment. When a person in bondage begins to say or do things to you in order to make you angry or resentful, you have two possible responses. You can either forgive them or allow the resentment to infect you. You've only got two responses, right? You can either forgive them or let that bitterness come into your heart. The person is already in prison, in the prison of resentment and bitterness, and he wants you to join him there. But when you freely forgive him, then you're free from the entanglement of bitterness. You know, I have people sometimes send me nasty emails or say nasty things to me. You know, he's, uh, that person's already in the prison of, 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 of bitterness and unforgiveness. And guess what? I don't want to be his jail buddy. I don't want to join him in the same cell. <laughs> right? Like, like, so I say, you know something? I'm sorry, I'm so sorry you feel that way, brother, but I forgive you. And you know, he gets more mad. So what do you mean you forgive me? I says, yeah, I forgive you, brother. They get, you know, and the emails get longer and more nasty. I go, wow. Right? You know why he's lonely in that prison cell and he wants somebody else to join him in that bitterness. But I ain't going to join him. I may visit him, but I'll not join him. You know, and I'll say, I'm praying for you, brother, to let you out. But, but right now, I'm not going there. No. Forgiveness disarms the ugliness of vindication. You know, there's something in our hearts about vindication where we feel, oh, that person wronged me. But when we forgive, it disarms that ugliness of vindication that wants to rise up in our hearts. It frees us from it. It has no power on us. But if we don't forgive, that ugliness of vindication begins to take over our hearts and lives. So isn't it an easy way just to overcome that power of that ugly vindication? One way to destroy our witness for Jesus Christ is to be unforgiving and vindictive. Jesus taught, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's what it is. Like a lot of people come into churches or, or see Christians and, and they're unconvinced of the gospel. And it's because they see disunity and they see lack of love. That's what they see. It's like our brother was sharing, Mark was sharing last night. What's the power of, of chicken evangelism? It's loving people. You know, one thing too, when you share the gospel, never do it. As if you're just doing it because you're trying to get ratchet points. Oh, I got to witness other person. But you do it because you really care for the person. May not, you might not have known them before, but you have a care for that person. And so we need to, in fact, uh, the gospel has damaged, been damaged so much, so much by believers who have not walked in love. And I mean, Martin Luther, the great reformer, do you know he became a very powerful anti-Semitic voice? And even... Uh, expounded uh, violence towards Jews. And as a Jewish believer, when I would try to witness to Gentile, to Jew, Jews who are not believers, and I'd say, well, you know, about Jesus, they go, oh, it's the Christians that brought all the persecution. It's the Christians that, that for thousands of years have, have put us to death, have enslaved us, driven out of our homes and lands. One time, uh, my brother was witnessing to a, a fellow Jew, and, and, and this guy said, said that. And you know what my brother's response was? 
He said, it's true. Some of those people were true Christians. And it's a shame that that happened. And you know what that Jewish guy's response was? Thank you for being honest. You're the first Christian or first follower of Jesus who actually admitted that they were true believers who did these terrible things. Because the way normally we say, oh, no, it was just, it was just unbelievers that, did, you know, they had no faith really and stuff. But some, Martin Luther and others, who were guilty of atrocities towards Jews. In fact, the, 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 uh, the Nazi movement based some of their anti-Semitic theology based on Martin Luther that really hurt the gospel. And he's a true believer. And God used him in some wonderful ways. But there's some bitterness there. There's a lack of love. And it stained and tarnished his, his message and his ministry in history. But let us not be like that. One of, the great, one, one of Jesus' greatest examples of love and forgiveness is seen on the cross. In the face of pure hatred, he spoke words of pure love. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, when people are in your face, like just growling at you, that's what it's like. They're all growling at him. In the face of absolute pure hatred, he responded in pure love and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. When we as believers pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it is an acknowledgement that unconfessed sins, resentment, and unforgiveness is destructive to our lives. If we do not deal with unforgiveness, we will still go to heaven. But something very precious of God's plan of salvation for our lives will be lost eternally. Will be lost eternally. Anyways, I, I, I spoke really quick and I cut the message down about six minutes. So, so you, and as I share this message, I don't know where, where you're all at. If you've got stuff in your heart, I don't know those things. But you know the good news is? There's something that we have today in this room. Everybody in this room is alive. I noticed that. Everybody's alive, which means we have today. We have today to make things work. We have today to say, God, I want to deal with stuff. We have today. But don't wait till tomorrow because that's another day that you've lost. And the chances are if you're not going to deal with today, you won't deal with tomorrow. And the next thing you know, you've lost another decade. But we have today. In other words, forgiveness is not about a feeling. It's a choice. Saying, God, I choose to forgive those people. And it may the feelings may not come along right away, but it doesn't matter. We choose to say, I don't care what my feelings say. I care what the Word of God says, what Jesus did. And every time I think about something ugly that someone did to me, I think Jesus died for them. Whether they're a believer or unbeliever, whether they're going to be saved or not saved, Jesus died for them. And I can forgive them because justice took place at the cross. And when I say, thank you, Lord, I forgive them, I'm giving God the highest praise. Saying, I believe in the cross of Christ, not only for myself, but for others. We're going to have the ministry prayer teams come forward. And if you want prayer, we're going to pray for a moment. But if you want prayer, please come forward. Now, prayer is not only for if you're dealing with unforgiveness. You know, the problem is sometimes we, 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 we have a message like that. Everybody thinks, well, I got something real bad in my heart. I don't want to go up there because people think. Sometimes maybe you have a bunion that needs to be prayed for. So if you need healing, you can come up too. You know what I mean? It's not like, so we don't want to have this like the walk of shame. Like every time people come, I wonder what's wrong with that brother. I wonder what's wrong with that sister. You know, we can, we can even come up and give thanks saying, you know, I want to get, I want to pray for these people and give thanks that God set me free from bitterness. Right? You can, it can be a, a time of prayer to give thanks and to testify that, you know, something God has.
has set me free. I have walked in freedom. We can, so prayer is not just about having.